Okay, well, last week, we're here in a, well, lesson 20, which is kind of crazy to think about. 20 of these lessons have gone by, and we've made it quite a ways and covered a lot of territory here, but we're going to keep plugging along. Last week, we, we finished off by surveying and finished you know, really studying the unlimited atonement view. We're studying the atonement, and really we're, we're coming back today to further evaluate that position and see how well it holds up under examination. But before we jump right into it, I think a, just a quick word to reframe the discussion. You know, so I've been thinking about these Wednesday night studies. Part of the benefit of our Wednesday night studies is that we can take our time. We're in no rush. We can really have a study like this and just go through all the issues little by little and just plug along. And that's actually great. Because you get to study things without rushing through and you get into greater detail in many areas. The problem, though, is that these studies get split up over several weeks. And so in between, it can be a challenge just to keep it all together, even in your own mind, and remember, well, what, what was last week and where are we exactly? And so that's why I try and do these little quick recaps every so often. And right now, we're again, we're back studying the atonement of Jesus, specifically the extent of the atonement. And the basic question, it's posed this way most often, for whom did Jesus die? For whom did he die? On whose behalf did God the Father send the Son into the world? On whose behalf? On whose behalf did Jesus willingly go to the cross and make atonement? For whom? So far we've we've surveyed this question and the, the couple of basic answers. In short, some would say that Jesus died for everyone ever. Others would say that Jesus died for his people, the elect, the church, so forth. And so we're, we're just trying to understand both sides, examine both sides, and compare it to Scripture. That's like the, the big goal of this middle part of our Doctrines of Grace study. And along these lines, last week we really plowed into the position of Arminianism, which states that Jesus died for all people without exception. And this position is, is one that's usually termed unlimited Atonement, meaning the atonement he provided is unlimited in scope. It was made for everybody without exception. He died for everyone. This atonement, unlimited in its uh, breadth or in its scope. God loves the world. God desires for all to be saved. So it's only fitting that God sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world. Of course, not everyone is saved by Christ's atonement. Only those who believe receive the benefits of it. The atonement of Christ must be appropriated by faith, and Arminians will be quick to add that you must uh, choose to believe of your own free will to receive the benefits of that atonement. And so really the deciding factor in man's salvation is his own free will, they contend. What's interesting, though, is some Calvinists actually hold this view as well, namely that Jesus died for all people without exception. I mentioned that last week, remember? We might call them four-point Calvinists as they drop out that the middle point of the five points of Calvinism. They, like Arminians, believe that Jesus died for all people, but only those who believe receive the benefits of the atonement. These four-point Calvinists differ from Arminians, though, in, in that they still believe it's, it's God's will who limits the atonement. The Arminian believes it's, it's man's will who limits the reception of the atonement. Like, you have to choose to believe. The four-point Calvinists, though, believes that God sent Jesus to die for all, but that God still sovereignly elected some to receive the benefits. So they're still, you know, Calvinists. They just believe that this was a universal provision of salvation, even though God sovereignly chose to only uh, apply it to the elect. 
And although this view holds that Jesus died to make all people savable, he died to make salvation available to all, his was a general propitiation for sin on the cross. It's a provision made for all people. It's it's available to all. It's accessible by all. You just have to come and, and receive it. But that being said, Jesus actually secured the salvation of no one in particular, just kind of, you know, everyone in general. That they believe. Now, last time we also finished up by looking at the main support for this view. Like, okay, that's what they believe. He died for all without exception. Why do they believe that? What was their support? So we got into it. The three kind of top reasons, and real quick on these as well. The first, they contend that unlimited atonement matches the universal language of Scripture. That there's this list of passages, this is from last week and beyond, where you have words like the world and all being used in connection with Christ's death and the atonement. Like John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so they, they just appeal to these passages as just plain and simple proof. Like there, it's, it says world, he died for the world, case closed. It says he died for all, that's it. So that, that's really the, the first and primary argument that they, they, they use to support this. Second, they believe unlimited atonement enables the free offer of the gospel. Everybody believes that the gospel should be preached to all. But the Arminian will say that, well, unless Jesus actually died for everybody, you can't genuinely offer the gospel to them. It's more of a, it's like a sham. It's, it's illegitimate. Only they who believe that Jesus actually atoned for them can genuinely offer them the gospel they believe. And then third, they believe unlimited atonement upholds the love of God. This is where we kind of ended last week. That really central to Arminian theology is this desire to uphold, defend the love of God. They believe that God loves all people just the same and he, he wants all to be saved. And so that there's no place in Arminian theology for a view that God would not send Jesus for everybody. They just can't ever accept that because of their view of the love of God and how they define that. Well, that's where we kind of ended last time. We surveyed this unlimited atonement, what they believe, why they believe it. And look, for for many, it it may be appealing. Many are convinced by these arguments. Some people just, yeah, look at the language and, yeah, it says God loved the world. I guess case closed, right? Even some Calvinists have been convinced. That's why we have, you know, these four-point Calvinists on this issue. They, They switch sides. But at the same time, this position and these arguments, they're not without problems and some quite significant, substantial problems that we're going to talk about tonight and see how well it shakes up under examination. When you really bring in the counsel of God's word in regards to salvation, there are some significant problems with this view, although many would say it's just it's the popular view. It's the view held by most who, you know, it it sounds so reasonable that, yeah, God loves everybody, sent Jesus for everybody, that's. Natural mind is no problem with that. But there are some real uh, sticky scriptural problems with it. And that's what we're going to cover with our time tonight. Just now this is the evaluation of the unlimited atonement position and the problems with it. So there's five that you have. And if you're a note taker, I mean, that's all this is. It's almost a blank page for you. But there are, will be five we'll cover. And number one, universal language passages are not so cut and dry. Remember their first big argument and support was just all the, you know, those passages with world and all. Uh, Jesus died for the world. He died for all. And the case closed. Well, universal language passages, they're not so cut and dry. 
Again, the bulk of their argument just rests with these passages where universal language is used in connection with Christ's death. And they'll often just give a list of these verses. And, you know, they say, well, the Bible says world, the Bible says all. It's taken to mean everyone without exception. And they'll just say, like, it's obvious, it's clear, it's a no-brainer, it's the plain reading of the text, and just case closed, that's it. But the issue really is not as cut and dry as you might think. Inherent in language is the fact that every word has multiple meanings. Words can carry multiple meanings. And words, they have a range of meanings. And, for example, the word world, I believe in John's gospel alone, is used seven seven different ways. Seven different meanings to the world cosmos or world in John's gospel. And only one of those does it mean every single person ever born. Everyone without exception. So instead, people often use the word world in in limited ways. More limited ways. And the same goes with words like all. See, these universal words, they have a range of meaning. And sometimes they can be used to refer to all people without exception. Sometimes they're they're used to refer to a, a subset of people or all people without distinction. If you're not really tracking with what I mean or if you're not following, just some examples will just make it all easy for you. So... You have some of these in your notes, and I'll, I'll read these for you just you know, real quick. Here's some examples. Here's some examples where it's, it's clear in Scripture itself where the word world is used in a limited sense. These are just some kind of easy examples, right? John 12, 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good work. Look, the world has gone after him. This is after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead and his ministry, and they're obviously rejecting him, and they're upset because the world has gone after him. So the, the world is, is believing in Jesus. Now, that's obvious hyperbole. Does that mean everyone ever born? Obviously not, right? The context makes it crystal clear. It's actually just a small portion. They were using hyperbole. They were exaggerating because it felt like, man, everyone's believing in Jesus, although they weren't. And a bunch of other people weren't too, and people in China weren't. So it's, it's clear in the context that world there means really just a bunch of people in general, but nothing more, right? See what I mean? Luke 2, verses 1 and 3, it says, Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. And verse 3 says, And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. This is a very universal language. They're taking a census of all the inhabited earth. But does it really mean like the whole globe and everybody on the planet? I think to you this is probably obvious that it doesn't. And why is it obvious? Because we know the context. Context gives words their meaning. And the context is just talking about the Roman Empire is really all it's talking about. And even then they're not going to get every single person in the Roman Empire they just mean it's, it's supposed to go out to the whole empire. And when it says everyone went on his way to register for the census, well, it's just most people, basically, but not every single human being in the Roman Empire went to register for the census. Now, we use universal language like this all the time for emphasis, to make it, you know, to, to get, give the point across that, you know, it seems like everybody's going, even though we don't literally mean every single person without exception. You get what I'm saying? Romans 1.8, where uh, Paul says uh, of the Romans, he says, Your faith is being proclaimed 
throughout the whole world. Now, it's, just, it's not just the world, but the whole world. Does that mean the whole world? Well, do you think the faith, in that moment, the faith of the Roman church was literally being proclaimed in the whole world? It's, it's, again, it's, it should be crystal clear to you and obvious. Like, well, no, obviously not. Again, people in South America were not hearing about the faith of the Roman church in that moment. It is hyperbole. And so even Arminians would see here and argue that, yeah, okay, in this case, world doesn't really mean world. It just means, you know, like the known place, you know, most people around. But you see, there are many instances where the word world means all people without distinction, not all people without exception. There are exceptions. The whole point is there's many examples where the word world uh, means all people with exceptions. There are exceptions. The context makes clear what those exceptions are. And that's all we're talking about here. Revelation 13.3, the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Talking about in the tribulation, the whole earth, everybody is following the Antichrist. Without exception, well, actually, no, there, there are exceptions. Revelation tells us the exceptions that a remnant of believers don't follow the Antichrist. So when it says the whole earth, it's not all without exception. It's, it's all with exception. And there's many more examples of this. The same thing goes for the word all used in a limited sense. Mark 1, 5. It's talking about all Judea was going out to John the Baptist. And all the people of Jerusalem were being baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, later context, we know that the Pharisees and the scribes were not baptized by John. They did not go. They're from Jerusalem and Judea. They did not go. So here, all doesn't mean all, right? Here's a a clear example where all is actually limited. It's just, again, a hyperbolic way of of storytelling, saying it felt like everybody was going. Thousands of people were flocking to John. And it seemed like everybody, everyone you talked to had been baptized by John, but there were exceptions, Luke 21, 17, Christ said, you will be hated by all men because of my name. Well, not really all men, like not believers. Just, he's talking about the world. So all just has a subset. It's talking about a subset. Acts 21, 28, the Jews were saying that uh, of Paul, this man preaches to all men everywhere against our people and our law. Actually, he wasn't talking about Paul there, but another preacher. Again, all men everywhere. It's just It felt that way, but it... There really wasn't all men everywhere, literally. It's just a manner of speaking. And then a, a pretty famous example of this limited language where Paul says in 1 Corinthians six twelve, all things are lawful for me. Really? Are you going to take all to mean all without exception? So now in Christ, Paul is saying murder is lawful for him. Right? All things are lawful. All means all? Well, no, it, it's clearly limited by the context within you know, the, the Old Covenant, the New Covenant, New Covenant believer, uh, all, all that was barred in the Old Covenant is lawful, right? So the whole point in this, and there's just way more examples, countless examples, that even these universal words like world and all, they have to be taken in their context, don't they? Words have ranges of meaning, and they're limited and defined by the context. It tells us what is really being meant. That, that goes for every word. That's how languages work. And so we've seen clear examples where all and world, for example, did not mean all without exception. Rather, the context proved there are exceptions. There are exceptions. 
So far, so good, right? So the point I'm making here is that for Arminians and four-point Calvinists, it's actually, it's not enough for them just to give you a list of passages that say, you know, God loves the world, Jesus died for the world, he died for all, and so forth, and say, case closed. That's not enough. They've got to do more if they're going to really build their case. Since these words, like all words, have a range of meaning, they they have to take it a step further and actually demonstrate from the context that these passages really refer to all people without exception. The thing is, you'll you'll rarely find an Arminian theologian who actually does that and, and tries to do that. And Calvinists on the flip side would contend that in this universal language in the Bible is meant to show that Jesus died for all people without distinction. Here's the difference. All people without exception, that's everyone ever born. All people without distinction, that just means all kinds of people. Jews and Greeks, men and women, slave and free, rich and poor. A distinction made in scripture that we would affirm. Jesus died for all kinds of people. But are those verses truly saying he died for every single person ever born? They have to prove that in the context. And that's not done. If it can be displayed that universal language in these verses just means all people without distinction, all kinds of people in the world, all nations, then really the biggest part of this unlimited atonement argument just falls, which is this universal language. So here's what you have to do. If you want to be a Bible study student, you want to be a a student of the word and get it right, you've got to go through all the key verses on the atonement one by one, study them in the context, not just make assumptions and really ask, is the context limiting the extent of the atonement here? That's what you have to do, right? One by one. That's how theology is formed. You can't just rattle off a bunch of proof texts and say, case closed. You've got to really make your case one by one in the context. And that's what we're going to do. Not today. We don't have time today. But in a future lesson, we're going to come back. And we can't cover every single verse. But we're going to hit some of the key verses on the atonement. And look at the language, like John 3.16. And look at the context and see what it's really saying. One by one. And you can judge for yourself as we study scripture uh, what the language is saying. All people without exception? Or is it all people without distinction? All kinds of people. That part we'll save for later. But the point for now, the first problem with unlimited atonement, this whole universal language stuff, it's not as cut, as dry, uh, cut and dry as you might think. It's, it's not a case-closed issue. We'll have to save more for later. Because I want to keep moving, though. So number two, the second problem. Unlimited atonement does not enable the universal offer of the gospel. Remember, that was the second big argument. But it doesn't. You'll often hear them say that, again, the only way you can legitimately offer salvation to people is if Jesus died for all of them. Otherwise, it's kind of a sham. This is just a case where simply asserting something doesn't make it so. Like, yeah, you can say that, but says who? I mean, where, where, how are you backing that up? You can't just assert that. You have to, can you prove that? In reality, God makes sincere offers, even though he knows people are hardened in unbelief. Did not God command Moses to tell Pharaoh to let the people go, even though God knew Pharaoh would not do it? He still said, go tell him. Was that a sincere offer? Yeah, it was, because God said so, Exodus 3. Did not God call Isaiah to preach to Israel, offering them pardon and cleansing, 
Even though he knew they would not repent and believe and they would be hardened. Isaiah 3, Isaiah 6. In Ezekiel 2, he was called to preach. But he was told, the people will not listen to your message, but go anyway. Does that make their preaching illegitimate? Of course not. The legitimacy of the offer of salvation comes just from God's command to preach to all. And that's it. So this objection by Arminians, it merely stems from this erroneous assumption, namely that God can't be sincere in his offer uh, of salvation if Jesus didn't really die for them. And the response is, says who? Do you have a verse that you can like support that with? Because scripture says it's genuine because God commands us to and, and it's right. In fact, it's not inconsistent with God's sincerity to command all people everywhere to repent and believe. God must command all people everywhere to repent and believe because it's according to his moral law. It's the right thing to do. God always commands that which is right, even if he knows they will not do it. Even if a person knows their invitation, invitation rather will be refused, they can still be genuine in offering it. We do that with Thanksgiving. We don't go down to Thanksgiving it too much anymore because just so much driving. We offer our family like, hey, you know, we're going to host it ourselves this year. We know all of my family's in L.A., Angel's family's in L.A. And so like, hey, we're going to host it. If you want to come, you are genuinely invited to come to our Thanksgiving, even though we know no one's coming. It's a genuine invitation, even though we know it's not going to happen. You know, people are still responsible for their choices, and therefore God is still consistent in commanding them to repent. Just remember this, when the gospel is presented to unbelievers, what prevents them from believing? What stops them from coming? Is it God? Is God just holding people out of the kingdom? No. It's their their own sinfulness, their own spiritual deadness and unwillingness. God never prevents anyone from coming. A side note, he doesn't have to. People do that themselves by their own sin. Their own sin natures prevent. Now, God, in not bringing such people to new birth, he effectively seals them in their doom. That's when we studied reprobation in the past. But God is not the efficient cause of their damnation. Their own sin is. Their own sinful choices is the primary cause. And so, look, all the conditions of the the gospel call are true. The universal call of the gospel. When scripture says that if any repent and believe, they will be saved, that's true. That's a true statement. You know, if, if anyone repents and believes, they'll be saved. That's true. And you combine this with the fact that we don't know who the elect are. That is hidden from our eyes. And so with these facts together, the universal offer of the gospel is established. You know, Calvinists, they fully believe in preaching the gospel to all the nations. In fact, it's been many Calvinists who've launched global missions with the desire to get out there and preach to all the nations for this very reason. And so uh, we can do so legitimately, even despite Armenian objections otherwise, which are just really empty. Now, a third problem here, number three. Unlimited atonement does not defend the love of God. It does not defend the love of God. It's not the way they think it does. Now, again, here's this fundamental problem with Arminian theology that if you, if, if you were with us when we studied election months ago, you, you've heard a lot of this before, but it's worth repeating. You know, Arminian theology was basically spawned from this question. 
Now, how can a loving God not save everyone? How can a loving God send people to hell? Let people go to hell? Just doesn't compute. The natural mind can't understand that. If he's so loving and so powerful, why wouldn't you save everybody? And so the only solution for them is to say that, well, ultimately, God's not responsible for this. This is not on God. To the contrary, God, he loves all people. He desperately wants all people to be saved. He even sent Jesus to die for all people. But not all people are saved because not all people choose to believe of their own free will. So you see, God, he did everything he could. And the rest is up to us. It's it's our fault. And that's how they get God off the hook in their mind. Here's the problem, though. You know, loving someone is all about seeking their best interests, even if it means going against their wishes. Would you agree with that? Seeking their best interests, even if it means going against their will. So God sent Jesus to die for all people, they say. And and then God even covered the world in this prevenient grace. Just gave everyone the grace needed to come to salvation. So everyone has it. Why? Because God doesn't want any to perish. So they have everything they need. But then God stopped right there. Like, I I gave you Jesus. I've given everyone the same grace. But he refuses to go any further. He refuses to go one more step and change someone's mind. Or change someone's will. Or, you know, give them a new heart. And just lead them to belief. He He won't do that. He'll stop short of that. Why? Well, to them, they say, because God, he has this utmost respect for our free will. And he's not going to cross it. Even if that means the vast majority of people will spend eternity in hell. God's not going to change our free will. He can't do it. He won't do it. Does that really sound loving to you, though? Does Does that sound like that defends the love of God? Especially since you could easily say that, you know, if God was truly loving, he could, he has the power. Why didn't he just make everyone believe, right? He went so far as to send Jesus for everybody, his son to die on the cross, to pay for everyone's sins, they believe. That's a pretty big step. It's a pretty drastic step to try and save everybody. And then he gave everyone the same grace. Everyone has this prevenient grace. He's done a lot. He has the power. Like, why stop there? Why just go the extra step and just like make everybody believe of their free will? Just change everybody's will so that they don't spend eternity in hell. If you really love them, right? Why, why not just do that? You see like how it, it, it doesn't really do anything to defend the love of God? Do you solve these fundamental problems? You know, yeah, it may go against our wishes being in rebellion, but at least we don't spend eternity in hell. You think he'd just save us if he wanted to so desperately? Or the other question, you know, why didn't God create a world in which, remember they believe in this foresight? Why didn't God create a world in which he foresaw that everyone would choose to believe of their own free will? If that's how it's got to be, right? If, if that's how it has to happen, that if the only way you get saved is by choosing of your own free will, why didn't God create a world where he foresaw every single person he created would choose to believe of their own free will, and therefore everyone would be saved? He has the power to create such a world. Either way, Arminian theology, it does nothing to defend the love of God. It just kicks the can down the road. You still have a world where God foresaw, before creation, according to them, he foresaw that the vast majority of people I create in this world 
They're going to reject me. They will not believe of their own free will. They're going to go to hell. Despite all my intentions, I'll send Jesus for them. They're all going to go to hell anyway. And he still chose to create this world. He didn't have to create this world. He could have made any different world, but he still chose to create it. You can't escape the fact God's will is done, no matter what. God's will is just simply done. He's the creator. He chose to create. His will is done. Arminianism doesn't defend the love of God. All it really does is diminish the will of God and the supremacy of God. And the end result is that God's will is foiled by man's will. Jesus died for all to save them. He desperately wants them to be saved. But his will is limited by our will. And so, really, functionally, whose will is more supreme in this scenario? Christ's victory on the cross, therefore, was largely defeated by Satan's will. Satan, you could say, had a, had a more powerful outcome from the cross. His will was done. The vast majority of people in the end, or at least, at least the majority of people in the end, perish forever. And the cross really becomes a massive defeat. God tried to save everybody, but he really only got a, a tiny portion. You see, Arminian theology, taken to its logical conclusion, is something called open theism, which believes that, you know, I guess God, he really just doesn't even know the future, or he's not powerful enough to change it. That's open the- theism. And that's really the logical conclusion of Arminian theology. It's where it came from. Too bad that's heresy. But just what does that say about Arminian theology? If, if that's your logical conclusion, it's just heresy. You know, at least Calvinists just state the obvious, which is this. If God really wants to save someone, he's going to save someone. His will will be done. Nothing can stop that. He's supreme. He's the infinite creator of the universe. We are a speck of dust. He's going to do what he eventually wants to do. Our God sits in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Man's free will is not the most powerful force in the universe. Scripture teaches that God's will is supreme. Therefore, God must have some greater purposes in choosing some and not others. In setting a special love on some and not others. That's actually what the Bible teaches. That Jesus came and died for his bride. That Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The object of a special love, a redeeming love. And we'll come back to that thought later. That's uh, for the study on limited atonement. But for now, despite their best efforts, they're not the defenders of the love of God that they think they are. They really just diminish God's supremacy. Well, a couple more here. Let's get through these. Number four. A fourth problem with this view, unlimited atonement leads to double jeopardy. Not related to the game show. It's not not that, but a different type of double jeopardy. This is kind of an old argument. It's used against unlimited atonement, uh, that it leads to double jeopardy. If you've never heard that before, it's like a legal term, legal concept. Namely that a person cannot be tried twice for the same crime following an acquittal or conviction. So basically, you know, you can't pay a penalty twice. You pay it, you're you're either guilty or not guilty, but then it's done. It can't be tried again. So this is a logical argument based on the nature of God's perfect justice. That God's not going to make someone pay twice for their sins. And so here's the problem with unlimited atonement. They, They state that Jesus made this real atonement 
for all people. But don't forget, you know, Lesson 17, a little while ago, we studied the atonement. What does it mean when we say he made atonement for people? Remember that the terms of the atonement? It means this, that he made, he, he made a ransom for, for, from sin, reconciliation to God, complete redemption. He was a substitutionary sacrifice. He made propitiation for the sins of the people. That's, that's what we mean by atonement, that he did all that on their behalf. And so Jesus paid for all our sins on the cross. And then what do you say? It is finished. And therefore, God's wrath is gone. Isn't that the whole point, right? He, propitiation, he bore the full wrath of God toward our sins. It's finished. There's no more wrath. That's what propitiation means. And so they're saying he did this for the whole world, for everybody. If that's the case, though, why do people go to hell? Why would anyone go to hell? If Jesus actually paid the sins of someone and he made propitiation for their sins, like he bore God's wrath for them on the cross as their substitute, what wrath is left for them in hell? It's not for their own sins that's already been paid, unless it's, it's like double jeopardy where God is, is making them pay again. Right? So Jesus satisfied all of God's wrath toward a person's sins. All of your sins are paid for, the wrath is gone, it's finished. But because you didn't believe, well, not so fast. You actually still have to pay that same wrath in hell forever. Even though Jesus already did it on the cross, well, now you have to do it too because you didn't believe. And it makes you think, like, what did Jesus really finish on the cross then? What, what was he really doing there? If the wrath, I guess, so God's wrath wasn't spent, Jesus didn't really drink the full cup of God's wrath on the cross. He just potentially did it. It's not just a logical argument, but a, a biblical one, too, because according to Scripture, why do people perish in hell? The answer is because of their sins. The fact is their sins have not been paid for. Their sins have not been atoned for. That's the whole point. That's why they go to hell. They, they have not had an atonement made for their sins. John eight twenty four. Jesus says, unless you believe... You will die in your sins. If you don't believe, you're, you're going to die in your sins. Your sins, they're still there. They've not been taken away. They've not been atoned for. Now, so think about this. Think about all those people who were already in hell when Jesus died on the cross. All those people who had already perished for you know, however many thousands of years when Jesus died on the cross. They already died in sin and unbelief. They're already condemned. So did Jesus die for them? Did he still die for them? Did he pay for their sins on the cross? Did he make propitiation for their sins on the cross? The Armenian would have to say yes if it's an unlimited atonement, right? All people ever born. So they'd have to say yes. But here's the problem with that. You know, all people agree that you know, on the cross, Jesus was paying for the sins of Old Testament saints. Old Testament believers had their true atonement come on the cross. But if Jesus died for the whole world, for all people ever born, that means that on the cross, he was paying for the sins of people already in hell, already condemned, even though they have no chance of salvation. And there are massive problems with this. It means that Jesus, he ransomed people already in hell. He reconciled them to God. He redeemed them. This is the, the verbiage of atonement, right? He made propitiation for them. Yet they're still in hell. Like, why would they still be in hell then? 
Why, why not at the cross then? They're all just let go because he died for them. You see, if, obviously that's not the case. So does this not rob the atonement of its power and its purpose? If Jesus died for those in hell, why would they remain in hell? Now, of course, Arminians respond that, well, no, 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 Jesus, he just made a provision of atonement. And not really for anyone in specific. And so if a person doesn't believe, they never, you know, access the atoning power. But, you know, this basic Arminian belief, it's really self-defeating, especially with the whole love of God thing we were talking about before. And you just think of the person who, they, they never even heard of Jesus or of the gospel. We talked about that. Remember the old lesson on, on what's called heathen salvation, just people who never got a chance to hear. So to them, though, you have this idea that God loves those people. He sent Jesus to die for them, that they could be saved. He made them savable, that they could hear the gospel, right? And God did this for them because he, he desperately wants them to be saved. But God knew that billions would perish, though, without ever even hearing about this atonement that was made for them. So God sent Jesus to die for them. He went to that extent to send Jesus to die for them. But he didn't ensure that they'd even hear the good news. He has the power. Like, why not make the gospel available to everyone? At least have a chance. Revelation talks about in the future, an angel will preach the gospel from the heavens to the whole world, right? Why didn't God do that? So that all those people in South America who died before Columbus, right, never heard of Jesus ever. They never even got a chance to hear the gospel. What about them? What good did Christ's death do for them? Is that an expression of, of God's love? Bottom line is this. At the end of the day, the Armenian is forced to say that Jesus did the exact same thing for people in hell on the cross as he did for people in heaven. That on the cross, everything he was doing on the cross, he did the exact same thing for those who are in hell as those who are in heaven. And there are serious theological problems with that. We're talking about the same substitutionary sacrifice, the same ransom, the same reconciliation, the same redemption, the same propitiation. And we would argue, if that's true, they shouldn't be in hell anymore. They should all be freed from hell because the wrath is gone. Their sin is paid for. And so really, Arminians have no choice but to fall back on this provisional view of the atonement that you know, it wasn't an actual atonement, it was a potential atonement, a provisional atonement. That's what they said. It's part of their whole argument here. And so this leads to number five, the final problem we have. And this is one of, if not the biggest problems we have with unlimited atonement. Unlimited atonement unbiblically redefines the atonement. Unlimited atonement unbiblically redefines the atonement. They change what the atonement is, what it does, what it means in an unbiblical way. Here's what happens and what must happen for Arminians and four-point Calvinists. So when you contend that Jesus died for all without exception, he made atonement for all people without exception, you're forced to redefine what you mean by atonement. You have to change what you mean by he made atonement for all people. You keep all people, but then you lose atonement. That's what happens. They're trying to uphold the universal language. So when it says world, it literally means everybody ever born. So they keep the universal language, but then they lose the atonement language. They rob 
the atonement language of its meaning, its significance, its value. You have the death of Jesus, which doesn't actually save anyone. It just makes people savable. You have an atonement, which doesn't actually atone. It just potentially atones. But this, this is just not the biblical concept of the atonement. First, this whole notion of a provisional or potential atonement, it's just, it's just not a biblical concept. Where is the support for it? You won't find any. I have not. Hey, maybe someone can convince me, show me a serious biblical argument for this provisional, potential atonement. But I haven't seen it. Where does it say Jesus made a, a potential ransom of sinners? A potential reconciliation, a potential redemption. To the contrary, Scripture teaches that Jesus died not to make us redeemable, but to actually redeem a people. He died not to potentially reconcile us, but to actually reconcile us, to actually ransom us, to make a real and actual propitiation for sins. In Scripture, uh, it teaches that Jesus actually accomplished something objective in his death. Uh, Arminians, they, they have to rob all this language of meaning. And there's a lot of language. You have to go back to Lesson 17 and maybe re-listen to it, where we covered all the language of the atonement. It has meaning that those words mean something. They propose a redemption that still leaves people enslaved to sin. A reconciliation that still leaves people estranged from God. A propitiation that still leaves people under God's wrath and Satan's power. It's a potential atonement that doesn't really make atonement until someone believes. And this watering down of the atonement, it's even resulted in some Arminians abandoning the central theme of the atonement, which if you remember, it's something called you know, the penal substitution. Penal punishment, substitution in our place. The central theme of the atonement, Jesus died in our place, as our substitute. But they have to abandon that. They can't say that Jesus actually died in your place individually. He didn't actually die for you specifically, just like you in general, like all you people. They can't say that because Jesus didn't really make atonement for your specific sins. Then you'd be saved. Rather, just, you know, sin in general. They can't say that he died as a substitute sacrifice for anyone in particular, just people in general. But we would say, going back to Lesson 17, that's just that's not the atonement. That's not what the Bible says about what he did. He was a substitute sacrifice for his people. At the end of the day, you have to ask, did Jesus come to make salvation merely possible or actual? Did he come to actually save his people? Did he come to put people in a savable state? Or did he come to effectively secure their salvation? Armenians choose to limit the power of the atonement and they redefine the atonement unbiblically. And speaking of that, a final point here. Realize everybody limits the atonement. It's kind of misleading to say unlimited atonement versus limited atonement. Because in reality... Both sides believe in limited atonement. It's just which one. Now I'll explain that, but everybody believes in some form of a limited atonement. Let me explain. Arminians and four-point Calvinists, they say the atonement is unlimited in its extent, in its scope, meaning it's made for all people. 
everybody, it's, it's, it's on behalf of all people. So it's unlimited in scope, right? But not everyone's saved by this atonement. Therefore, they must limit the power of the atonement. It doesn't actually save people. They must limit the, the efficacy of the atonement. It's limited in power. It's limited in its accomplishment. The atonement, it's given for all, but it doesn't actually accomplish its intention for all. But you understand how that's still a form of limited atonement? It's for everybody, sure, but it doesn't actually save anybody. It's limited in efficacy. It's still a form of limited atonement. The Calvinist, however, contends that the atonement is, yes, it's limited in scope. It's limited in extent. It was not given for all people without exception. It was made for the bride of Christ, the elect. So yes, in that sense, the atonement was limited. However, the Calvinist sees an atonement that was unlimited in its power, unlimited in its accomplishment, unlimited in its efficacy, namely that what the atonement was designed to do, namely save people, it did 100%. It's unlimited in its power to save, and it saved everyone for whom it was intended, irrevocably guaranteeing their salvation. It's atonement that actually atones. And so the picture, just kind of wrap this up in your minds here. Picture this, a mighty river. Whatever river comes to your mind when you think of a, a mighty river, like the Mississippi or whatever. And so atonement to the Arminian, it's like a bridge. This super broad, wide bridge that goes halfway across the river. Doesn't get to the other side. It's really broad though. It's for everybody. It can fit everybody. It only takes you halfway across the river. The atonement for the Calvinist is like a bridge that's narrow. It's, it doesn't fit everybody, but it gets all the way across. It takes you to the other side. That's the difference between Calvinist atonement and Arminian atonement. It's what did the atonement really do? What seals this whole debate? This is such an old debate. It's a confusing debate. I've pondered it for years myself in my mind. It's always been a hobby for me, this one. It just comes down to that. What did Jesus really do on the cross? Did he, did he actually atone or potentially atone? It, it largely comes down to that. We'll leave it here for now, though. These are some of the problems we have and why uh, we would contend against this unlimited atonement view as they define it. We're not quite done, though. It's easy to poke holes. It's easy to throw stones at another view. That's the easy part. You have to say, though, if if unlimited atonement, if it has problems, if if it doesn't hold up, well, it's it's still left for us to now examine the other side, which is, you know, Calvinist limited atonement. See what they believe, why they believe it. Same thing, right? Like, okay, what do they say? Why do they say it? And then put it under examination, too. And it has some of its own problems. Both, that's why it's such a debate, right? Because both sides can go back and forth, back and forth. So we're not quite done. We're, we're almost through. More clarity is coming to answer the question, for whom did Christ die? But you made it halfway. So I hope you'll be back next week. We'll keep going. So we'll save more for later. Next week we'll start getting into looking at limited atonement, that the Calvinist side of this. Well, a little over time, so I'll pray for us. And if any have any questions, you can come see me after. But let's, let's go ahead and pray now. Lord God, again, we give thanks. This is a, a profitable study and a, a, an enjoyable study just to look into your word. And it's, it's a valuable question. For whom did Christ die? The, the work on the cross, 
is what Scripture's all about. It's the pinnacle of your plan for this world and your, your plan to get glory for your name, to redeem a people for yourself. And how can we not want to know everything about this work, the work of Christ, the work of salvation for which he came into the world? And it, it may not be the most important question in the, in the end of the day. It should not divide us from one another, but we still want to know, Lord, the intention of this plan for all, for some. And again, just to get it right. So continue to illumine us. We're not done, but continue to use the Spirit to speak truth to our minds and make the Scriptures clear to us. And either way, we give thanks for Christ who made atonement that that we believe was an actual atonement and uh, the one who gave himself to die for us. We we praise you for that. And, And though one way or another, not all are saved, we who are can certainly cherish his atonement, praise you for it, behold the, the majesty of it, even wonder at it. We don't know everything, Lord, but uh, we pray you continue to show us more. Bless your name for this study and, and keep us till next time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.